This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are at the end of Season 6. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. I also write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Father Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. and He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist for National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, good to see you too. Even if it's on a little screen, I'm happy that you're here. We also have bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three subjects. First of all, the narrowing of the field of Democratic nominee candidates to Joe Biden. And then we're going to be continuing our conversation on the sacraments with the sacrament of marriage and the sacrament of holy orders. But before we get to all that, Dan, how have you been? David, I have been riding the roller coaster of pandemic. It's been the best of times. It's been the worst of times. Let me see how many more cliches I can cram into this. No, things things are, are plugging along and uh, things are okay. There are times where it's less okay, as I think a lot of people can relate, but I've been grateful that you know, I am personally doing well. The friars that I live with are are doing well, you know, physically in terms of the virus and so forth. We haven't, knock on wood, at least that we're aware, have been infected or affected directly by that. I did learn in the past week that a aunt of mine has been diagnosed and confirmed, you know, with with uh, the virus, um, and I think that's increasingly more and more the case that people are are aware of the fact that friends and uh, relatives, extended relatives, if not immediate relatives, given the nature of this global pandemic, will be affected. And so it's more of the same in a sense, but continuing to to pray. 
pray, to try to be in solidarity with those who uh, are suffering, and, and in a special way, being mindful of those who are considered essential workers and first responders and that kind of thing. So, you know, other than that, uh, continuing to wrap up the semester here on on the academic end of things and grading and doing that kind of fun stuff, quote unquote, fun stuff, <laughs> as you know, and as some of our listeners, I'm sure who are teachers realize there's a hundred percent, nothing fun about grading and all that kind of thing. And so if, if it was unpleasant to begin with, it's made worse by being stuck in one place for going on five weeks or so. But Holy Week was good. We had a very simplified celebration of the Triduum. Uh, I think I've shared before that in the community of Franciscans in which I live here, the six of us in Chicago, I'm the only ordained priest. So, you know, I presided. Uh, it was kind of like the tiniest little congregation, tiniest little church of the five uh, friars that I live with. You know, two of the guys are deacons, so they were able to um, assist and, and have, play a particular role in the liturgies as well. And so it was, it was very nice. You know, normally we have on Easter, we we invite friends of ours and colleagues of ours. Sometimes we've we've had somewhere between you know four and six guests uh, over the years, and this was the first time where it was just the six of us. And so, I keep thinking about that scene in the movie of Gods and Men, uh, the movie about the Trappist monks in a predominantly Muslim country that was experiencing a turmoil and uh, a kind of a civil war, and they were they were end up they ended up being. Uh, murdered, they ended up being killed, and uh, it's it's a very moving uh, story about interreligious dialogue. It's a true story, um, and about how these monks had the opportunity to leave and to to go to France as the violence was increasing, and they chose instead to stay. But there's a very very touching, very moving scene in that movie where the the community of of monks are having dinner together, and the music that's playing in the background is Swan Lake, uh, and it's just very powerful where the camera's kind of on each of the faces as they're kind of coming to this realization, this very Eucharistic moment that this may very well be their last meal, you know, and um, there are times, not to be overly dramatic about it, but but that scene comes to mind because of a religious community, particularly a religious community of men who, you know, are just mindful of their kind of isolation and the challenges before them, their challenges are obviously much more extreme um, and, and the consequences far dire, more dire than I think what, what we're facing right now. But there is a sort, sort of kind of gravity to the whole thing. And so there are times when it's, you know, day after day, the six of us, and I'm like, oh, you know, the soundtrack could start playing where you have, you know, Swan, you know, this theme from Swan Lake appear and it's like, oh, geez, is this going to be the last meal before somebody gets sick or what's going to happen? So, that's a very long-winded, <laughs> perhaps, uh, it's, it's a great movie, by the way. I highly recommend people check it out. But uh, all that is to say that it's been a very interesting time. I am very eagerly looking forward to some sense of normalcy or new normal whenever that comes. And sadly, it doesn't look like it's coming in the short term. So, David, how's it going with you? Well, uh, similar to you, I am trying to find ways to incorporate rhythms into my days. And so you, you mentioned in your most recent NCR column that, you know, it, it seems natural for a priest to be called to pray at this time. And you've been kind of figuring out how to find that level. I also have been figuring out how to find levels of prayer uh, on a regular basis, but also just trying to find ways to structure my day 
because of my particular kind of mental framework, if I don't have structure, I tend to become kind of a shambling mound walking around the house. And so making sure that I have regular times in the day when I need to show up for things, either for my family or for the wider world has been important to me. And so I I continue to do my daily kind of half hour house concerts that I do on Facebook Live. I'm continuing to teach. All those things are helpful to me. And things like this, like conversations with you and with other friends are also highlights of my of my weeks as I'm going through. My family has been really amazing in this time, and in particular, my two kids, Maggie and Beckett. They have found ways, even though they are stressed, to work with, with us and be flexible as parents and to be very understanding when things have to kind of not go the way that we plan them to go. And, you know, we wish that, like you were saying, we wish that we could return to normal or whatever the new normal is going to be. But if I was going to be stuck anywhere with anybody, I'm glad that I'm with these people because it's been a real blessing for me to have some of my hard edges worn smooth by these folks over time. And it's been really, really good. I, I'm thinking a lot about the the NCR column that you did this week where you're talking about kind of your own trying to find the rhythms of prayer and things like that. And I think a lot of people maybe who are listening, maybe feel like they should be doing something more than they're doing. And I think I I, want to ask you about this, you know, because I imagine you struggle with this like I do. We all, particularly in academia, are trained to be kind of productivity junkies and to use all of our downtime for like upbuilding. And I think that it's important for us to say, you and me, and maybe to others, that it's not about what you produce during this time. And maybe you you have a different opinion of this, but my sense is if we just get out of this intact with health and with those that we that we care about safe, but also doing everything that we can to keep those that we that we maybe don't have quite so immediately with us but who are vulnerable also safe, that that will be a win. But I'm I'm interested kind of what your take is on that. Yeah, no, I entirely agree. And it is something thank you by the way for the the kind words and the references to my column this week. You know, I was I was very inspired by a piece written by the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison, which I used to kind of frame my reflection in, in that uh, column. She recalls a time where she felt stressed, felt frustrated, felt fearful, felt angry, felt kind of uh, in a corner and, and unable to write. And it was a time where she felt there was a sort of, uh, I think, a lack of hope, a lack of future, this sort of thing. And she recounts a conversation she had with a friend, another artist who kind of interrupted her in in what is a very understandable position, her expressing her own inability to work on a novel that she had started in the midst of the stress that she felt weighing on her. And this artist friend said, no, 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 no. This is not the time for artists to not work. This is the time, in fact, where artists should work and writers should write. And and the point was not, and I make this in, in the column, make this distinction, it's not about productivity in a kind of a capitalistic sense. Like we need to be producers, uh, you know, uh, for the sake of production, for the sake of, um, you know, just making, but rather this is the time where things that seem frivolous, things that seem superficial, particularly in the so-called normal times are exactly what's necessary. Things like art and music and literature. And, uh, and, and I use that basically to think about, uh, believers too are, are meant to pray that that's what we do. And prayer can seem like nothing at times. And I, I use a quote from uh, one of Thomas Merton's reflections where he says, you know, prayer can seem to the believer to be 
nothing. Nothing's happening. Like, you know, I go to pray and I don't feel anything. I don't think anything. I don't, you know, visualize or experience anything. And his point is, no, 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 no. It, it is in the, in the very act of attempting to pray, something is happening. And so all of that is, is to kind of say that I think I, I'm very much against any kind of sense that we need to be productive for productive sake. You know, I make clear in the column and I've said, I think even on this podcast, and, and I've, I've shared this on social media and in conversations with people, this is not a vacation for us academics. It is not a sabbatical. It is not a retreat even. You know, when we think about prayer, this is not a time to be focusing on, you know, how do I improve my prayer or something like this in a, in a kind of uh, goal-oriented way. The goal is to be and to be oneself. As you say, to leave this intact so what does that mean to be intact? It means that artists need to, you know, to create and writers need to write and believers need to pray and musicians need to perform like you do every <laughs> two o'clock in the afternoon. And so, so I think, you know, that's the kind of mode that I've been encouraging myself and struggling with, frankly. I'm, I'm somebody who is, is a very active person and physically and intellectually and listeners are, who've been with us for six seasons are not you know, surprised to hear about how often I travel and how often I speak and, and all this sorts of quote unquote academic and, and kind of popular productivity that is, is part of my ordinary life. But this is an extraordinary time that involves adjustments. And so whether it's a matter of, of working and how one relates to their work, because you, you know, many of us who have the luxury and privilege to be able to still work, work from home, you know, for us who are teachers, for instance, or those who are risking uh, their own health and safety for the sake of others, these essential workers. And, and then I'm mindful as well of those who have lost their jobs. And reports came out this morning as we're recording this, that the unemployment rate is something like has reached something like 22 million people in the US. I mean, we're starting to look down the barrel at what is close to another a second great depression and it's it's deeply upsetting so i i'm not you know trying to be flip about things like art or entertainment or novels or or even prayer but but i think you know morrison's point is well put which is you know it's in times like these in these struggles in these moments of fear in these moments of stress and anxiety and rightfully so that we need to be most authentically ourselves in order to be, as you said, David, maybe unwittingly, you know, for us to remain intact, as it were. So that's kind of my thinking about it. And, and I hope it was conveyed, you know, the title is uh, of the column was not the title I had written for it. I mean, that's, this is something that those of us who are, are writers and authors, uh, particularly in, in journalism context, know well, is that editors get their hands on it and you have no control over that. Sometimes they run with what you propose, sometimes they don't. Uh, and I think, in the end, they they did a good job with the title. It's it's a very vulnerable title, and it's true. It's reflective of my experience, but that wasn't originally my point. All that is to say is that, um, as I make clear, I hope in my piece, I, I'm not preaching, you know, from a place of perfection or having it figured out. I I'm struggling with this myself as much as anybody else. That that last piece and so much of what you said is important, but that last piece I think is vital. The title of the piece includes the phrase "I'm learning to pray again," and you just said, you know, I I'm not saying that I'm doing this perfectly. 
this is something that I have said privately to friends, but also what I have said to people as I've been doing these house concerts. When I began doing these house concerts 30 days ago now, my fingers were raw from the guitar playing because I hadn't picked up the guitar and played it seriously in a number of years. And what I said then is what I say now. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I believe that that's a Chesterton quote. But I, I really think that it's true. And and the question for us to discern right now is what is it that's actually worth doing? And even the things that we may not do perfectly may be very important and very worth doing for the sake of our souls and for the souls of others. So things like prayer, even if it simply starts as a kind of halting, unsure voicing of despair, I think that even that is a step. And, you know, anything that people can be doing to connect with other people right now, I think is vital and important. Because even if you think that you're offering into the world, whether it's a prayer or whether it's something on Facebook Live or whether it's, you know, something that you write and that you share on Twitter or something like that, anything that you do that becomes a lifeline for someone else or anything that you do could become a lifeline for someone else, I think that that's important work, even if it's, as you say, it's not it's not necessarily finished or polished in the way that we would normally like. I think that all this is, is just an important thing for us to be remembering is that nobody knows how to be acting right now because none of us have ever been through this before. And anybody who seems like they have it together just has a good PR firm as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. This is something I hadn't thought about until, until you just shared some reflection there, David. But, you know, one of the big critiques of social media culture, and I think a valid critique for a long time has been, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or these sorts of things, is that people are generally only presenting their best face forward. And I actually think there's a sort of breakdown of that that I hadn't really thought about before in a positive way, which is people are sharing their struggles. Not everybody. I mean, some people, I don't know if they're trying to put forward their their best, you know, quarantine life or something like that. But but I think there is a, you know, there's there's a real repugnance with people, you know, trying to do that if that's anybody's aim at this point is to try to put their best face forward. I think there's there's a, you know, a, a healthy skepticism, like you said, that it's a PR production. And so I think maybe this is a moment of, of greater solidarity. I mean, there was a piece in the New York Times this morning that suggests, you know, there are some social scientists who are suggesting that actually this is you know, one of the potential silver linings of what's going on is a shift in how people think about their relationship to others, even in a more kind of general vague way. And and I think that's an optimistic look. I'm not totally convinced that that's the case or the necessary outcome. We tend to, in short-term moments of crisis, like immediately after 9-11 or during World War II or what have you, there does tend to be an esprit de corps that, that surfaces. But uh, sadly, human nature, you know, theologians, we would say, as a consequence you know, of the effect of original sin that stays with us even after baptism, we do tend to kind of revert to a selfishness and self-centeredness and, and breaking of relationships. So in the meantime, I, I think that's exactly right. What you were saying is that you know, it's the attempt, it's the try, it's the motivation behind prayer or creative expression or connecting with one another and being empathetic and supportive and uh you know realistically cheerful with uh, you know with one another not pollyannishly optimistic but you know as people of hope you know we are as this season continues an easter people and it's a people that believe that you know death does not have the last word so i think that's important well, with that, we'll go ahead and get into the episode. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and current events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. And then there was one. It may be hard to remember, but at one point, we had 28 candidates in the current race to become the Democratic Party nominee for president. Twelve months ago, the field was the most diverse in terms of race, sexual orientation, and gender that America had ever seen. As primary season began, the number of candidates had shrunk considerably, and with Super Tuesday, we found Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, both white men, as the only remaining viable contenders. In the wake of the recent and controversial Wisconsin primary, Bernie Sanders announced that he was suspending his campaign, and with that announcement, Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee of the party heading into the 2020 convention and election. So Dan, let me start here. We began the process with so much diversity and ended the process with, for want of a better term, the known quantity in the form of Joe Biden. Is this a case where the process went right or went wrong? It's the case where the process followed its own process. (laughs) I don't, I'm not sure, honestly. I think it's a fair question. I don't know if it's right or wrong. That's kind of a moral valuation. I, I think I would have liked to have seen you know, the diversity of candidates persist certainly a bit longer. But there was at the beginning, you know, right around Super Tuesday, there was that real big drop off where a lot of people dropped out pretty quickly. And then shortly after that, of course, Elizabeth Warren. So you had a gender, the lack of gender diversity that followed the lack of ethnic and racial diversity that had happened through February. I don't know. I mean, I'll just be honest, Biden was not my first choice in terms of a Democratic candidate. But I've always had tremendous respect for him. I think that he is, uh, as as people have said, a decent man. He is somebody who, from a Catholic perspective, is a practicing Catholic and long has been. People will take issue, of course, as soon as hearing that, that can, can a Democrat ever be Catholic and so forth. I like to refer them to the only Catholic president of the United States, uh, one uh, JFK. But if people view candidates through a singular lens, in this case, you know, the dismissal of Catholic Democrats tends to be through the lens of abortion, then there's no satisfying answer for them. So there's no point to have that conversation. But that notwithstanding, I think... I think Joe Biden's record is very, very good. Um, I had lived in Wilmington, Delaware when he was my senator, and he was very good to the friars as well. And yeah, he was a he was a very good vice president on, under President Barack Obama. I think that I have shared concerns with others about his sharpness and his kind of uh, ability at this senior level of his life. Whether I I think, uh, let me put it this way. I think and it's going to risk me sounding ageist, but in addition to the lack of gender and racial diversity in the end, you mentioned, you know, two, two white candidates with, you know, Bernie Sanders and and Joe Biden in, in the end. But I think the, the, the further concerning point for me was the, you know, the septuagenarian final tally. The truth is now, and, and there was then, because President Trump is also in his, his mid-70s, you know, it's an old, old field. And I, I think there's reason to be concerned about that, too, in terms of new ways of thinking, thinking new perspectives on the world, and agility and the ability to do what is by far one of the most difficult jobs one could possibly have as 
President Trump has demonstrated, you could hold the office and still not do the job. So um, I suppose that's a possibility. But if you want somebody who can do the job, you know, one only has to look at pictures of before and after, whether it's Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama, all three of whom were relatively young men when they assumed office. And then you see pictures of them, you know, eight years later, they all look like they're 40 years older. So um, it's, it takes a toll. And I, I do worry about that. How about you, David? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts. So I, I've said before on the program that I am not a Democrat, although I do caucus often with Democrats. And so I oftentimes approach primaries and these processes as a kind of cynical outsider. And as a person who has been kind of an independent voter for all of my life, I wonder continually at the reasons why the process seems unable to actually pick diversity and actually unable to pick younger candidates, as you're saying. And it's easy to ascribe some kind of conspiracy theory to that. I think that it's also, just as you said, it's it's not a matter of anyone manipulating the process. It's that the process itself is inherently conservative. Like there are breaks and checks built into it to keep revolutionary candidates. And however broadly you want to define that term, whether revolutionary in terms of expectation or revolutionary in terms of politics, it's designed to keep those kind of voices maybe in the mix for a period of time, but ultimately not to make the final the final card. I think that I have been concerned as I have watched Biden over the last few weeks. He seems to have not the kind of dynamism that I would want in this moment from a candidate. We need someone right now with a strong, clear voice who can really gather people and make them feel like there is an end in sight to what we're going through. And I think that's going to be part of what we need heading into the election is for someone with a voice to actually say, I have a plan, and I say that kind of remembering that this was kind of Elizabeth Warren's trademark, for someone to say, I have a plan, and to be able to credibly sell that plan to the American people. I have not seen evidence that Joe Biden offers that right now. And maybe maybe he's holding his cards close for reasons of his own. Maybe there is some other reason why he has not kind of come out clearly swinging, like I would like him to, but I have, I've been unenthused by his attainment of the, in the wake of his attainment of the nomination, presumptively, I've been unenthused with how he has handled those reins so far. And I, I think also we need to note in this conversation that in the wake of the presumptive assumption of nomination, also some allegations have arisen about some of his past behavior with regard to sexual impropriety of various sorts. And I don't know how that evidence is going to play into the coming weeks, but I think that that's also a grave concern for me right now. Yeah, I think the New York Times has done a really good job in talking about that. And I refer our listeners if they will, if they want to look at this, because I think it's being weaponized by both the far left and the far right against Joe Biden. I don't have any special information or access, you know, beyond what's being reported by without a doubt the world's you know, most trusted and and professional reporters. But the New York Times Daily podcast, The Daily, did a very good review of what that information is. And it basically is one allegation by a former staff member. And it is a serious allegation. And because he is the presumptive nominee, you know, this is how they kind of analyzed eventually to report it and to talk about it. That they, that they have to acknowledge it. However, in the deep dive of uh, analysis and reporting, it's a very 
incredible allegation, we'll put it that way, that the times and the evidence and, and the lack of substantial corroboration raises certain concerns. So this is I'm not defending anybody in this case or anything other than repeating what has been reported. And I, again, re- refer our listeners to, to check that out. So I do appreciate you, David, bringing that up. That is important for us to realize. It's also important to realize that there are many, many credible allegations against the sitting president of the United States. And that doesn't need to be rehearsed because it's it's pretty well known. And of course, there are those recordings uh, of, of his own admittance of really vulgar and uh, assault-like language toward women in particular. So it's not about, a, you know, two wrongs make a right. That's certainly not the case at all. But I think in, in terms of due diligence, it's important that, as you rightly say, that we need to acknowledge this. Let me kind of take the conversation in a slightly different direction. In the wake of Biden's assumptive nomination, we have seen in the past few days religious intellectuals, I guess kind of I'll call them public intellectuals, who have begun to say in certain quarters that they are not interested in voting for either major party candidate and they're wanting to vote now third party in some fashion. And I'm wondering what you think about that as a strategy in this particular moment. Would you reject that as a strategy because of the kind of existential threat to the country perhaps that we see in Donald Trump? Or would you see that as a viable way of voting one's conscience? And I guess my, my ultimate question is, what is the role of conscience to play in the coming election, in your opinion? So in my truthfully expert opinion, right, as a theologian uh, and, and as a priest, I would say I, I refer to what both the local Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, has said in the U.S. context, but also what the church teaches more broadly which is the primacy of conscience. So to your second question first, what role does conscience play? Conscience plays 100% of the role. You cannot be compelled to vote for somebody of any party or of any political ideology, any clergy person who tells you you have to vote for this person or that person or that you cannot vote for this person or that person on moral grounds or any other grounds is is violating church teaching. So that's first and foremost. Conscience is the ultimate arbiter here. As Catholics, we believe that we have a responsibility to have a well-formed conscience, but both as Gaudi Metzbez says and as John Paul II and Paul VI and Benedict XVI and Pope Francis have all reiterated, that is the ultimate arbiter, that we have recourse to our conscience. And that is what should inform our uh, participation in society and in politics. So with that said, to your first question about third party candidates, you know, if that's how somebody in their prayer and reflection and uh, adequate consideration of the facts and of the information, um, which is all part of it, right? You can't just be like, oh, I feel this way. I'm going to vote that way or something. It needs to be informed. If at the end of the day, their conscience guides them in such a way that they feel they cannot vote for either of the two major party candidates, then, you know, voting with their conscience is is a justifiable end. I am, as you anticipated, not keen <laughs> to support third party candidates because that does not work. That does not have a history in the U.S. system, in modern history anyways, of, of working well. We, for better and mostly for worse, are a two-party political structure. And I and I lament that. I don't like that. I prefer, frankly, the dynamism of coalition building that is, is more common in parliamentary systems and multiple party systems like you have in, to a great extent, in places like Germany, Israel, even uh, the UK, and to a lesser extent to our neighbors to the north in places like Canada, where because 
there aren't just two kind of monopolistic parties. You have to work with others. You have to form coalitions to govern and to be successful at that. And as you know, and, and I think that just lends itself to a, a different form of governance, a different form of, of social structure and, and uh, formation of society. But we don't live in those contexts. And, and therefore, frankly, I think the choice is really between Vice President Biden and President Trump. And I do see another four years of President Trump to be an existential crisis for a lot of people, beginning with the most vulnerable. And I think that his absolutely horrendous handling of this global pandemic and the deaths that have risen unnecessarily because of his inaction and the decisions he's made and the the kind of double talk that he's offered, as well as, you know, his absolute egotism. I mean, I'm sorry to rant about Donald Trump, but these daily press conference conferences are completely absurd. And it's it's far worse than absurd. I mean, they're petty. They're about him. It's so insane. I mean, I don't know a novelist or a science fiction writer or a playwright that could come up with something as insane as this. So I'm sorry that if that sounds a little ad hominem to folks, but I, I don't know how else to characterize it. I think it's an objectively true analysis. David, I mean, do you disagree with me? No, I don't disagree with your analysis. I think that one thing for us to be thinking about as we end this season and anticipate picking up these conversations in the next season are questions about the structures that we have in place to maintain our democracy. In particular, things like the Hatch Act, which if listeners are unfamiliar with it, the Hatch Act basically says that a an incumbent candidate cannot be using the orchestrations of government themselves to help with their campaign. So you can't necessarily be doing campaign rallies from the White House because that gives you an unfair advantage. What we have seen in some of these daily pressers with President Trump in the last couple of weeks have come dangerously close to crossing the line, if not overtly crossing the line of things like the Hatch Act. And so those are things that also, I think, any person, regardless of their political stripe, who cares about the basic function of the structures of government should be lifting up and looking at with grave concern. So that, for me, is as important a question of who you may vote for in the coming election is the question of how in the in the anticipation of that election, how are we as citizens working to maintain not only our franchise, our ability to vote for the candidate of our choice, but for that candidate, once they assume power, to actually have a functioning government and functioning structures of government to help the maintenance of our democracy and our constitutional republic. Well, and I think, you know, you, you name structural concerns that are worth thinking about and that are very important. I mean, for positive and negative sides, the positive side is I, I'm pleasantly surprised that we are uh, as functioning a society as we are, given the dearth of competence at the top of the federal administration. That's one thing. But the negative side of things, too, is that, you know, like we see with the State Department, like we've seen with the National Security Council, with the elimination on the on the whim of Donald Trump and his advisors of the pandemic you know, task force that President Obama created in the wake of Ebola, the fact that he got rid of that, again, lends to real consequence that we see today. We see that with the State Department, we see it in other areas as well that affect the world and affect our own national security and safety. So the slow reshaping of these structures that have secured our safety and our future is also at stake, right? You know, another four years of this could really, you know, have have serious consequence, which brings me back to your original question, which maybe is a good place for us to wrap up. 
which is about Joe Biden. And, you know, your point about in contrast to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who famously her slogan was, I have a plan for that. You have expressed, you know, concerns about whether or not Joe Biden has any plans. <laughs> you didn't quite say it that way so flipply, but, but you know, in contrast, you know, there's a, a clear contrast there. What I would say is, speak, you know, following up on this conversation about the structures and these kind of systems of governance is that I, I trust the people that Joe Biden would put in office and put in appointment appointed places and positions that would oversee these kind of structural institutions. And he would put experts in place, you know, again, under President Obama, the Secretary of Energy was a PhD physicist, you know, shout out to Boston College, one of my alma maters, because that's where he went to college, but was was somebody on faculty at MIT and these sorts of things. He understood this. Instead, <laughs> Donald Trump replaces that physicist with Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, who in the Republican debates of 2015 wanted to eliminate the department that he's now the head of. I mean, it's so absurd. So, you know, to that end, I think basically anybody that Joe Biden, his administration would appoint would be far more, I would have far greater confidence in, in terms of these important departments and issues. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up this discussion for now with the assurance that we will certainly be taking up this issue and many that are related to it in our new season in the fall. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about a whole host of things, all informed from a perspective shaped by our shared Catholic faith. And what we have been doing during this season is looking at the sacraments. And with that, we're continuing this series on the sacraments. But because this is our last regular episode of the season, we bring you a double feature, a buy one, get one free, a two for one deal. We begin the segment with the sacrament of marriage. According to the Code of Canon Law, which governs the practices and disciplines of the church, the sacrament of matrimony is said to result in a special experience of grace. Canon 1134 says, quote, from a valid marriage arises a bond between the spouses by which its very nature is perpetual and exclusive. Furthermore, in a Christian marriage, the spouses are strengthened and as it were, consecrated for the duties and the dignity of their state by a special sacrament. Many Catholic Christians think of ordination, yeah, something I've experienced and we'll talk about after we talk about marriage, as conferring upon one certain, quote, duties and dignity. And yet marriage, too, is a special sacrament, a special state, and the formation of a covenant, a bond between two people. Given that one of us, Francis Effect hosts, is married and one is not, and if you haven't, after six seasons, figured out which is which— you have not been paying attention. It seems very fitting that the married podcast host should get our conversation started. And so with that, David, I am disclosing that you, in fact, are married. In addition to your perspective as a theologian, you also have personal experience. So how do you understand the sacrament of marriage? Where do we begin um, here? So I want to start by saying that I think that the process of discerning whether or not one should become married, I think is as weighty a discernment as one deciding if one should devote one's life to a religious order or whether one should devote one's life to... Wait a minute, you're supposed to discern that? I <laughs> I just walked in accidentally into one building, and next thing I know, 15 years later, I'm a friar. I'm just kidding. Well, and I think, so, I think some people get into marriage that way, too. They think that somehow 
going through the institutional activity of getting married will somehow confer upon them the wisdom of being married. And for me, my life has certainly not worked that way. I got married late, I guess, in terms of how people normally do this. So I was in my mid-30s when I got married and had been through a number of relationships, but also had been through a number of years of therapy and other kinds of adjustments to try and uh, get a handle on some of the aspects of my past that were continually in both not only my romantic relationships, but also in my friend relationships and my professional relationships were continually cropping up and sort of cutting me down in various ways. And so I will say that I think that marriage, if I were to give one sentence, I would say that marriage is a collection of habits. And the habits that you enact and the habits that you live in your single life will carry over into your married life. And so you need to be careful and have careful attention to the kind of habits that you are inculcating. If you live a life of self-centeredness, that habit will not be cured by merely getting married. It will merely make for, at least initially, a very bad marriage. And so I think that marriage is an institution where a person is obliged to be socially responsible for those around them. And I think that that's, that's an incredibly important thing, particularly for individualist, self-centered Americans to be reminded of. And so that's my initial kind of foray into what marriage is. But I'd love your perspective as a person who perhaps has married and counseled people in marriage, or at least has been in the process of observing people becoming married. Yeah, well, I'll say one thing, too. I mean, what you're describing just now, which I think is a very important kind of human-centered, emotionally-centered focus on discernment, particularly with an eye toward marriage, is important because you hear these stereotypes, right, about people saying, well, there's this aspect of my fiance or partner or something like this, but I'm going to change them. When we get married, it's going to change. And I, I see you shaking your head because it, it, it's just not true. We are who we are. And so we can change, but but the person has to want to change, right? And then, that ha- there has to be a focus there that the marriage itself, the act of marriage, the sacrament of marriage doesn't change people in that way. And that's also true about holy orders, which we'll get to later. But I think, you know, in, from the vantage point of the sacrament itself, so you you've really spoken to the discernment about entering into marriage and and finding the partner, finding the person with whom one would enter into this marriage. I think there's some things that might be worth talking about from a theological perspective for our listeners. So they might be surprised to find out, for instance, that the church actually came to the marriage game relatively late, historically speaking, that it wasn't really until the, the after really about a thousand years that the, the church really got into the so-called marriage business. Now, this raises questions. Does this mean that marriage was not a sacrament or is a sacrament or wasn't a sacrament and then became one? Or what? what's the story here? Because marriage was for the better part of a thousand years at least, and in many parts of the world still today, a, a civil action, right? It was a contractual agreement. And that marriage, another thing that's that's worth noting too, and, and this came to mind, as you said, that I have married a lot of people, and that is not true. <laughs> Donald Trump has married a lot of people and divorced them. And I've married nobody. And I mean that literally and figuratively. I have presided over a number of marriages, but it's misleading to think about a priest or a deacon who is the official or the normative minister of the church. And I take that back. They are not the ministers. The priest is not the minister of the sacrament of marriage. The ministers of the sacrament of marriage are the couple themselves. The the spouses are 
the ministers of the sacrament. The deacon or the priest is the presider. One presides over the celebration of the sacrament, but we don't, quote, do anything. We witness on behalf of the church the sacrament that's being officiated. And it's, again, the ministers, you know, of the sacrament are the husband and wife. There's so much there to unpack. And one of the things that struck me as you were saying all this was, if we look at the Gospel of John, for example, one of the, I I guess, the, the inaugurating moment of Jesus's ministry is the wedding at Cana and the miracle that he performs at the wedding at Cana. That's his first sort of public act in terms of his, his ministry. And, and oftentimes that's pointed to by people as, you know, how central marriage is to the Christian experience. I really like the historical corrective you just gave us to say that the church has largely left that to the civil realm, at least for the first millennium, and has become increasingly involved in that in the last thousand years. I think that, there, that one thing that we might want to do then for our listeners is ask, what is the difference in the eyes of the church between a civil marriage and a sacramental matrimony? Is, is, is there a distinction in their eyes, and what would that distinction be? So it, it gets a little bit complicated, and it's where the kind of canonical distinctions come in. It's actually so complicated, the various kind of elements here, that we really don't have time to get into it, because there are questions about what is the nature of, let's say, two baptized people entering into marriage. That is recognized and presumed to be a sacramental marriage as such. So even if it takes place in a civil context, it's recognized by the church, I should say, in, in a vague way. You know, here I'm, I'm generalizing. And there's a process called convalidation, where it's kind of recognized in a formal way by the church. So you can be civilly married and that the presumption is one of a of a valid marriage between two baptized persons, but it can be convalidated, right? This co-validation by a minister of the church, like a priest or a deacon, in, in a more formal process. That's very common, particularly in places like Central and South America, where for you know a number of reasons, people might want to enter into civil marriage for legal reasons, for for all sorts of. Uh, expedient reasons, but maybe have to delay the celebration in in the kind of church sense with a formal ceremony and, and, and reception and these kinds of things. It's also common in lots of other settings as well, but it does have an impact on, for instance, the role of annulments and, and the kind of what is considered inhibiting of a valid sacramental marriage if somebody were to be married, civilly divorced, and remarried or married in the church. So it does get kind of complicated. In order to avoid getting into the the complex messiness, perhaps we can simply say that there is a civil action that is called marriage that confers a legal status. There is a sacramental action called matrimony or marriage. They are oftentimes referred to with the same word, but as you're saying, the combination of who's involved, what their disposition is, what their baptismal past is, all will affect kind of how the church is viewing that in terms of its status as a sacramental marriage under canon law. First of all, have I just heard that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it can sound very dry and legalistic or juridical when we talk about canon law, but that's really where you know, it's true in a sense with all the sacraments, where do you see the matter and form, right? So, you know, that's that's the Thomistic, that's really kind of uh, an Aristotelian medieval synthesis for an- analyzing whether something is valid versus whether something is licit. And so we've talked about this before on the podcast with the other sacraments, you know, a priest who is validly ordained 
but may not have faculties or they're removed, let's say, because they've left active ministry in the priesthood voluntarily or because they've had the faculties removed because of, you know, uh, clergy abuse or that sort of thing, you know, they still validly celebrate the sacraments because they're validly priests and you can't be unordained. But they may not licitly or with, with authority, you know, celebrate the sacraments. So that's an important distinction. There's a similar kind of thing that that's operative when we think about the sacrament of marriage. It gets complicated by the fact that people say, well, wait a minute, we weren't married in the church. Let's say you and Kira, your wife, you know, you're, you're both baptized Christians. If you went down to the town hall or something like this to the city court to enter into civil marriage, the people would say, well, wait a minute, it didn't put, take place in the church. Is it, it's not valid. Well, except that you two are the valid ministers of the sacrament. And if you enter into that covenant as baptized Christians, you know, it may not be convalidated, right? See, the convalidation is important. It's with the church's blessing and reception. Not, you know, it's not now making it valid. It's also, you know, it's a co-validation with the acknowledgement that it's already a valid sacrament. I just want to tell listeners my own story quickly, because my wife and I were married in her childhood church, which is a Presbyterian church in Washington, Pennsylvania. And at the time she was becoming Catholic, but was not yet Catholic. So we were married in the church civilly and with a minister of, of the Presbyterian tradition. She later became Catholic, and that marriage was convalidated. It was uh, the the term, the technical term, is a radical sanation to heal it at the root. And so, our marriage that was outside of the church, I'm scare quoting there, was radically sanated to now be recognized as a valid sacramental Catholic marriage. So, when you have a valid sacramental Catholic marriage, can that ever be dissolved? I think that's a question that oftentimes gets really convoluted in people's minds. Well, before I get to that, because that's a great question, I, I just want to highlight, too, that there are also dispensations that can be granted by the local ordinary, by the bishop. So, you know, a baptized Christian, a, a baptized Catholic, marrying somebody of another religious tradition. Before the Second Vatican Council, that that could happen, but often happened with great scandal. You might have heard of grandparents or great-grandparents who were not allowed to have a, a wedding in the church. They had to be married so in the rectory, you know, even between Christians, like a Catholic and a Lutheran or something like that, or in your case, you know, a Catholic and a Presbyterian or what have you. But that has subsequently changed for non-Christians and Catholics, for Catholics and, and Christians of other denominations and this sort of thing. So there are ways in which one can be dispensed of the uh, what's called ordinary form. Uh, it's a dispensation of form. And, and again, it gets very, very technical and we don't have time for that. But without getting into all the great technicalities that your question just now raised, the short answer is no. From the church's perspective, a valid marriage is a valid sacrament. And with every sacrament, it cannot be undone. That's the internal logic here, right? We've talked about this in terms of baptism. You cannot be unbaptized. You can choose to disaffiliate. You can choose not to live up to your baptismal vocation. The same thing with the sacrament of penance. You're validly absolved. You cannot, you know, you don't get, that doesn't get reapplied after the fact, you know. You can't be unconfirmed. You can't be unordained. You can't be unmarried. That's the internal logic if you understand the celebration of matrimony as a valid sacrament. So, 
what is the role of annulments? What the hell is an annulment then? By definition, an annulment is a, is a statement. It's a stated act, just like we've talked about excommunication before, right? Excommunication isn't something one does to somebody else. Excommunication, in a formal sense, is a confirmation or an acknowledgement of something that has already happened, something that is. An annulment is the same thing. One doesn't. A divorce is something you do, right? You make a contractual agreement to separate. That's a divorce. That's a legal thing. An annulment is a legal statement of something that already is. You know, that's true both civilly and canonically. Civilly, they mean the same thing, actually, which means that a valid marriage did not take place. This is why annulment, the process of, of annulling a marriage is so painful because ultimately, and why, why for pastoral reasons, a lot of people resist to this and, and it's very understandable why they would, because let's say a couple is together for 20 years. They were validly married, right? That's the presumption, by the way, the church also presumes that the marriage is valid. So the, the, the presumption is that of validity annulment is the process of annulment is, is finding basically, and here I'm going to be a bit crass, so I apologize, but basically finding a loophole that would invalidate the matter, matter or form. An example of this would be duress. So in order for a marriage to be valid, both partners have to voluntarily of their own free will, this is where the exchange of vows comes in, right? Where they have to want to and open with openness agree to enter into this covenant, into this marriage. If one of them is doing it under duress, and that could be conditioned by a number of things. This is where canon lawyers will do a series of interviews and and look at the whole relationship and its previous you know, iterations and all these kinds of things and what's, what's happened around what happened before the marriage and at the, the marriage and so forth. Because it, let's say, you know, the so-called shotgun wedding, if you're getting married because you fear you're under pressure from the, your father-in-law to do that, that might raise to the level of duress and that you didn't validly enter into that marriage, right? You didn't willfully do it. And therefore it's invalid. It's, it's, it's an, they can state an annulment that it didn't technically take place. Now, what's difficult about that is, let's say you've been together for 20 years, you've raised kids together, you've lived together, it's been a huge part of your life. What do you mean we weren't married, technically? What does that mean, right? So you get into a really sensitive pastoral area. Again, this is something that I think Pope Francis has been really great in terms of his leadership in the church. The exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, is is one teaching document, one teaching you know, magisterial document of the church that that addresses this. It's not the only one, but recognizing that there are very complex, very at times painful realities that are atypical or that are are un, uh, that are extraordinary, and that you know this kind of juridical analysis of the sacraments can be very painful and and reinscribe pain. I think that may be a good place for us to leave this discussion. And let me kind of sum it up by saying this, that marriage is complex, both in terms of getting into the institution of marriage, the sacrament of marriage, but also in terms of the church's approach to marriage. But my takeaway from this conversation is this, that the points where the church gets too judgy and juridical and is not leading with its pastoral sensitivity, great damage can be done. And so what I'm hearing from kind of Pope Francis and from you is that the church largely should be looking at this as an exercise of its pastoral muscles before its juridical muscles. Have I heard that correctly? I I think that's right. But I also want to say, too, that the statement of annulment and the process of analyzing a marriage in which the couple has 
sought the declaration of annulment and the whole tribunal process can seem laborious and litigious and juridical, and in one way it is, but it is actually, and you know, here I'm going to try to shed some positive light on this, it is actually a pastoral attempt to accommodate realities in people's lives that are, as you say, complex, you know, marriages that have broken down or maybe never should have been to begin with, you know, that end in separation and divorce. And so it is a pastoral response, though it's an incredibly painful one because the whole experience itself is painful, whereas civil divorce itself can be painful. It tends to be, it could possibly be much more abrupt, especially if both parties are in agreement. I think the process of annulment is painful for people because it, it quite literally drags everything back out into the open, right? There are processes of interviews and, and, and in an effort to respond pastorally. You know, there are a lot of theologians and canon lawyers and ethicists who are doing work to try to understand the sacrament of marriage better, about the role of annulment, about the possibility of divorce. And I think, you know, just, you know, to your point about where to end here, pointing back to Amoris Laetitia, you know, one of the most controversial things there was this question about whether or not divorced and remarried people who have not had the statement of annulment in that first marriage, whether they should have access to the Eucharist and to other sacraments. And you know, there isn't a blanket yes, a free-for-all, but there is, in, a, in I think, a very important way, a pastoral acknowledgement of these complex situations, and that there may be situations for a variety of reasons in which the statement of annulment can't be given, either because people don't have access to tribunals, or the wait is too long, or there are non-cooperative parties, or because the whole process is too traumatic to be re-traumatized again in the dredging up of this experience in an effort to find a reason for annulment. Whatever the reason may be, are there other ways we can pastorally accompany people so that those who, who desire to seek the sacraments, which is the movement of God's grace of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, I mean, I just think it's so important to talk about that reality because as beautiful as as the sacrament of marriage is, and just by way of, you know, to use a, a Floridian 2000 metaphor of a hanging chad, I don't want to leave, you know, something I said earlier just hanging out there, just because the church as a normative practice in the West didn't celebrate marriage in the church context doesn't mean that the church didn't recognize it as a valid sacrament. I just want to make that clear. It just meant that it wasn't always being done in the context of the church space itself until you got to a point in, in world history and European history where the church was keeping the best records and it became, you know, convenient for a number of reasons that it would take place. That's a oversimplification. But one of the things that the church teaches is that this the sacrament of marriage is something that was actually established by God, God's self, right? Like all the sacraments are. And, you know, there are some documents that will even point back well beyond John's gospel and the wedding feast of Cana to Adam and Eve as, you know, from the very beginning, there is a sense, you know, which is why that reading is often in the book of Genesis comes up at, at uh, is the first reading in a lot of weddings. All of this is to say is that it is, in, in its ideal, a beautiful sacrament, but because you're dealing with, in particular, uh, a sacrament that centers on a relationship in which the ministers are themselves the couple, and that couples and relationships are, as you rightly say, complex, it is a very, very complex sacrament. So perhaps there will be time in the future for us to spend a whole lot more talking about it, maybe one of our bonus episodes down the road, but that's probably, like you say, David, a great place to end. And with that, we'll, uh, we'll be back in just a moment to discuss the sacrament of holy orders, but for now, you're listening to the Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and current events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. And this season, we've been taking a bit of time each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the Church, and we're finishing out this season with a discussion of holy orders. In some ways, this is the most visible of the sacraments. Whether we're talking about marriage, the celebration of the Eucharist, or baptism, it's hard to imagine these sacraments in the Catholic context without also imagining the presence of a priest or a bishop. And when you attend Mass, you have also probably noted that there are key roles reserved to deacons when they are present. And so as we finish out this season, let's roll up our sleeves and talk about the sacrament of holy orders. So Dan, I'd like to start here. At some point, you discerned that you were called to become a priest. What did that feel like? How did you know? It was July 8th, 1993. I was minding my own business, and I got a phone call And the call was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, for some reason, sounded like this. Dan! Become a priest! Ah! It's a great question, David. And um, the way that I've often talked about it, I think we've talked about this too. We've been on, you know, six seasons in now. I'm sure I've shared some of this somewhere along the way. But I, I often talk about my vocation, as I understand it, being discerned in two parts. That as, even as a young boy... I was fascinated with the liturgy, and I give my parents a lot of credit for my mother in particular very much resisting cry rooms, you know, and I understand that some people feel more comfortable there if they're embarrassed, you know, if kids are rambunctious and this sort of thing, which I certainly have always been. But she took kind of an opposite approach. My parents would have us right up in the very closest pew to the front of the sanctuary they could get. So we would always be right up front, you know, these little first and second graders, you know, looking over the kind of pew, mesmerized is how I kind of remember it, with what was going on up in the sanctuary. And, and very curious, you know, I, one of my earliest memories is my desire to be an altar server. I just thought it was so cool, these slightly older kids, you know, in fifth and sixth grade who got to be so close to what was going on. So I was always kind of captivated with the liturgy and with the ministry and with prayer and with the church and with theology. And so, you know, when I was in high school, I worked at my home parish as the sacristan. So it was a part-time job. Uh, During the school year, I worked on the weekends and, you know, took care of the church and readied uh, everything for the masses and the baptisms and weddings and this kind of stuff. And and then in the summertime, for many summers in high school, I worked full-time doing landscaping and kind of maintenance work on top of the sacristan sort of work. So I was always very close to the parish life. And I just felt this this general feeling like this was something that I was interested in, something I felt, I guess, to use the kind of cliche of vocation talk, I felt called to. And it wasn't, I can't identify one singular moment, just a general kind of overarching feeling. I I think I would imagine it was something like, you know, when we were talking in the last segment about discernment about, you know, the partner in marriage, where there may or may not be one moment where there's a kind of crystallization. There is certainly a moment where you you get engaged. There's a moment where you have a conversation where there's a tipping point. You know, there's a moment where I decided to enter, you know, to fill out an application to become a Franciscan and these kinds of things. So there's certainly that, but I think there's a, a general slow o- awakening and awareness to that reality. And that's been my experience. I say vocation in two parts because um, I felt a call to sacramental life, to ministerial priesthood, to be very technical about it prior to even my awareness of the reality of Franciscan friars and the Franciscan community. But I feel like that's a more fundamental vocation of mine. And so I kind of discover them out of order. But that's my that was my experience was that it was it was something that's always been 
present to me and something that I kind of grew in greater awareness of. And so when we talk about the roles in the church, the deacon, the priest, and the bishop, I think that there is one group of theologians that believe that that's a kind of unitary activity, that they all kind of form a line, that you start as a deacon because you're going to become a priest, and then eventually, hopefully, you'll become a bishop or something like that. Uh, or at least maybe that's the lay perception of how this sort of thing works. Are they, are they unified in that way, or is each office of ordination distinct? in terms of its sacramental role? Yes and no. They are related. They're tied together because they center on the bishop, and I'll explain that in a minute, but they are distinct. You used a a very good technical term there. They're they're different offices, um, and you're ordained to a particular office. So what's important to realize is when we talk about priesthood, priesthood is a very general term. By virtue of baptism, all all the faithful are share in Christ's priesthood. You know, you are a priest, a prophet, and a king, the so-called tria munera. And so um, priesthood is not something reserved for ministerial priests. That's the distinction here. So there's the priesthood of the faithful or priesthood of the baptized, and there's ministerial priesthood. One is ordained to ministerial priesthood. Now, ministerial priesthood is in fullness or it's in participation. And so the fullness of ministerial priesthood is held by the bishop. The Episcopal office is the fullness of priesthood. I am a presbyter. I am, you know, we use colloquially the term priest, and that's perfectly fine. But a bishop is also a priest. A bishop is fully a priest. As a presbyter, I participate in the fullness of priesthood, which is in communion with the bishop, which is why, for instance, in the Eucharistic prayer, it's both an ecclesiological statement, and it's also a statement having to do with holy orders, which is we pray for the bishop of Rome, who is the symbol of universal communion, and you pray and name the local bishop. That's why ministerial priests who are presbyters like me we do not have authority on our own. We share in the authority of the bishop, which is I don't have, I don't grant myself faculties to licitly celebrate the sacraments in public. That comes from the local bishop because the local bishop as an episcopoi in Latin and Greek rather means overseer. He oversees, is the leader of the diocese, but in, theologically he holds the fullness of priesthood. So presbyters, that's the technical term for the office. I, I belong to the college of presbyters, I share, I am a ministerial priest who shares in the priesthood, the fullness of priesthood that's held by the local bishop. Deacons are a bit of a weird category. They're kind of as, <laughs> I was going to sound really condescending or really uh, bizarre to refer to them as kind of like a zombie office. That's, and I don't mean to be dismissive in any way. It is a distinctive office, but deacons do not share in the authority of the bishop canonically. They do not share in the ministerial priesthood. And you can see that by what sacraments they are permitted validly to celebrate, and the sacraments at which they can preside are things like weddings, uh, marriage, which is, as we know, they are not the ministers of the sacrament, just like the priest or a bishop presiding over a wedding is not the minister. The couple is the minister, are the ministers. They can celebrate baptisms. Well, in, in any baptized Christian can validly baptize somebody else and can even licitly baptize somebody in the Catholic Church in certain circumstances. They are the ordinary minister of communion, but we have extraordinary ministers of communion that any lay person can be admitted to. They can proclaim the gospel and preach, though again, there are certain circumstances, celebrations of the Eucharist in the absence of a priest, certain exemptions that are made for preaching or even for proclamation of the gospel that lay people can do as well. 
and and so on and so forth. So the question sometimes is, what does it? What is a deacon? What is the office of the diaconate or the college of deacons? And they are ordained to it, but but they don't share in the authority of the bishop. They don't. They aren't ministerial priests. So what is the role? What what are deacons? Well, deacons are the back in the uh, second, third, fourth, really fifth up to the fifth century in the West. They were the primary ministers. They were like a full time minister with the bishop and the presbyters. The term presbyter comes from a word that means elder, but it has nothing to do with with age or seniority. It has everything to do with the role that they serve. That the college of presbyters were what we think of today as as your local priest, for instance, or what I am, what I'm ordained to, were the advisors and consultants who worked with the bishop, but they actually had more of a kind of a part-time role. So, you know, deacons, the term itself, diaconia, is oftentimes translated as service, and that's also true, that they they are ministers of, of service, um, bringing communion to the sick, you know, educating the faithful, these sorts of things. But their primary role is to assist the ministerial priest, and, and that is in the fullness of the bishop and in participation with the presbyter, which is what they do. To your point, they, they are distinct offices. I think maybe a layperson who is aware that ordination does something, they may be confused or wondering what exactly it is that ordination does. So when a person undergoes sacraments of orders, of holy orders, does something change? Is there some kind of magical process that changes in the person? So what So what? What changes and what doesn't change? Yeah. So you'll hear sometimes this language, ontological change being tossed about, and that is the church does not teach that. That is not part of our teaching. Nowhere in any of the conciliar documents, nowhere in the particular law of the sacrament, nowhere do you see that language. That language is relatively new. As best I can tell, it's traced back primarily to the late 1990s or early 1990s, excuse me, when then Cardinal John O'Connor of New York gave a retreat and he first used that term. John Paul II in a document used the term ontological when reflecting on the priesthood, but didn't use it in the way that people think of ontological change. That is, as you rightly asked in your question, that's magical thinking. Ontological change by definition is insane. And ontological change is for a person is insane. What I mean by that is Thomistic metaphysics says that that we're constructed of matter and form or substance and accidents, to think about it that way. What happens at the Eucharist can rightly be described as an ontological change because the being of the substance that we would ordinary, re- ordinarily recognize as bread, the being becomes the sacramental presence of Christ while the accidents remain the same. That kind of language applied to holy orders is very misleading and is theologically inaccurate. It would su- seem to suggest that what you see me the day before my ordination, I am Dan Haran, a human being, then upon my ordination, I still seem to be a human being, but I have been changed ontologically into something else. The quip I like to say, and I joke with my students sometimes about this is, if you talk about and try to argue for an ontological change for ministerial priests, then they are no longer considered human, and they are therefore no longer protected by the Geneva Convention, and you can torture a priest, you can do all sorts of things to priests because they're not human beings. So that's a bit of a joke, but you see the logic as that follows. So what does happen? That's your question. What does happen is what's called an indelible character is imprinted. So there is something that's permanent about ordination that's distinctive. So so it's analogous to a to baptism. It's analogous to confirmation, right? An indelible character is is related to the priest. So there's something about them. So what does that character entail? The character entails a true change, and the change is a change of relationships. So your relationship to the bishop changes, 
as a ministerial priest, I'm only going to talk about presbyters now rather than deacons because it's complicated there. But for a ministerial priest, we participate, we, we relate to the bishop differently than the ordinary layperson does. We relate to Christ differently because when we celebrate and preside over the sacraments, it is Christ who acts, not us. Christ who consecrates the blessed sacrament, not us. It is Christ who baptizes, not us, right? Christ works through the ministers of the church. And our relationship to other priests change, other presbyters. We enter into a, a fraternity, into one kind of college. That, you know, it's one priesthood that's shared, you know. Uh, and our relationship to the faithful changes, to the baptized changes. We arise from the baptismal priesthood, and the ministerial priesthood is ordered to service to the baptized faithful. So our relationship changes because we have a different responsibility and role and relationship within the church, within the body of Christ. But I can't overstate this because it's only in the modern era that people have really latched on to this ontological change as if that's, you need, you need this kind of weird metaphysical magic, as you put it, to justify the dignity and importance of the ministerial priesthood. The ministerial priesthood as Christ, going back to John's gospel, as you did in talking about marriage, you know, the, the gospel that we have proclaimed on Holy Thursday is the gospel of the service at the table, which is the washing of the feet. It's about, you know, Christ saying over and over again that it's, it's you, know, you want to be my disciple, you lay down your life, you serve others, you love others. It's a ministry of service, not of some kind of magical elevation of a person over and above and against everybody else. Well, as we look forward in the 21st century, one of the things that we often hear in North America is a shortage of priests and a, a kind of lack of vocations. I'm wondering, as we as we sort of finish out this discussion of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, what does the Church need to be doing to be addressing that problem in terms of lack of vocations and attraction to the priesthood? Or does the church simply need to be staying the course as it has been, and the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest? I have a lot of different thoughts about that. It's, it's probably, again, something worth noting and returning to at another time. I, I will say this, that one of the thoughts I have sometimes is people talk about a crisis or a lack of vocations. I don't know that that's entirely true. I tend to believe fundamentally that, and this is based on my own experience and based on my theological reasoning, which is that God calls people to different offices in the church all the time, but God does not compel us to do that. You know, otherwise we wouldn't be exercising free will. You know, I felt called to ministerial priesthood and a vocation to Franciscan life, but I didn't have to do this. And I could still, you know, it's like you and your marriage, you know, it's a vocation you're called to, but you could choose to walk away. You could choose to ignore it. You could choose to do something else. And at any time, right, it's an everyday decision. And that's true with ministerial priesthood. It's true with, with any vocation. So there's part of me on the one hand that thinks the Holy Spirit is continuing to call and inspire people to this way of life, to this particular office in the church, to this kind of ministry. Now, the question of what number is sufficient how many people and who is admitted to that office, these are all complicated questions. There's part of me that also thinks that in the U.S. context in particular, there were sociological, as, as a number of scholars have pointed out, there are sociological reasons why there was a huge boost of the numbers of, uh, of priests and, and men and women religious in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and then that decline. I think it's a false narrative to talk about the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s or the feminist movement or any of these other things as, as having an, a deleterious effect. I kind of think, and I agree with the scholar Sandra Schneider's um, 
that that was a a lot of people for reasons that may not have been the Holy Spirit's calling found themselves drawn to life and may have been very good ministers and very good religious for a time, but that was not ultimately where they were meant to be. I think that we are still operating in many ways, and you see that with a number of churches, particularly in northeastern urban areas. You know, every block has a Catholic church on it. I mean, that that maybe never should have been the case. You know, it was it was a false inflation of of numbers. So that's one thing worthy worth considering. I also think, you know, and and this is maybe something for another time, is if we talk about God as the one who calls people to ministerial priesthood, to the diaconate, to religious life and so forth, and to marriage then the question is raised, well, how do we as a community discern who God is calling, right? Because that's part of it too. The The theology of the church says that it is not a dem- democratic sort of thing. The, the community does not appoint somebody, a ministerial priest, a presbyter or a bishop, or even a deacon, but the community affirms the discernment of God's call in the individual. There's a there's a role for that in the rite of ordination, actually, where a representative of the community stands up and says, you know, we know this candidate, we affirm they're being ordained. It's actually a very moving experience in, in the ordination rite itself, you know, and I remember my own experience there. But it's not, you know, like some Christian denominations, it's not a job sort of thing where people are, you know, you have a search committee and this kind of stuff. But all this is to say is that I think it is complicated. I think there is a problem. One way that I see it manifesting itself is the problem is of distraction and noise. You know, institutions of vocation have been in the decline, whether that's the institution of marriage or the institution of ministerial priesthood. And and I think they're of a piece together, which is People have a very hard time discerning where God is calling them because there's so many distractions, so much noise, so many possibilities, and so many pressures that say that, you know, any kind of commitment is is foolhardy and that what you should do is keep all options open and this sort of thing. So that's a long-winded answer. I think there's so much more to unpack there about who God is calling, who's being recognized as being called, who theologically should have you know, should be admitted to the sacraments. You know, this is an, this is a live question right now, particularly the diaconate. And it's it's a lot more open gender-wise of the diaconate because the diaconate, as I said, does not share in the authority of the bishop, does not, uh, is not a ministerial priest. There are things for which the a deacon is, is ordained to be the normative or ordinary minister of, but those are things that are also in exceptional circumstances, any lay person, baptized person could do. So it's complicated. There's a lot to unpack there, man. So for listeners who are interested in more conversation about the diaconate, particularly on Things Not Seen, my other show, I have an hour-long discussion with Phyllis Zagano, who is a a, a recognized world expert on the history of the the diaconate and particularly the role of females in the diaconate. So I'll put that in the show notes. But like Dan said, we have been having these kind of conversations conversations now for six seasons, and I'm so grateful that they get to continue. So please expect us to be coming back to this question and to others in coming seasons of The Francis Effect. But for right now, thank you so much for having listened to us through this season, and if you've been a regular listener through our other seasons. And Dan, I'm always so grateful to get the chance to talk to you. Thank you for all of these conversations. David, likewise, I've always looked forward to this. Uh, I can't believe it's been six seasons. That's 48 regular episodes with uh, hopefully season seven 
coming to your ears this fall. Hopefully, by the time we get back on the air, we'll have a lot to celebrate in terms of being hopefully safely, healthily on the other side of this global pandemic. In the meantime, we're certainly in solidarity with you all in prayer and in thought, and we ask the same uh, from you. Uh, May the Lord give you peace. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded this show in social distancing and isolation in our own houses here in Hyde Park. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We normally have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks. And if you'd like to look them up, please do so at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they did give us the permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We now have six full seasons for you to go back and listen to, and we'll be back in the fall with season seven. Thank you so much for listening.